The Digital Salon is a curation of listening experiences produced by the alumni and affiliated members of the Urban Humanities Initiative at UCLA. Even as urban space reinvents the enclosure, season two seeks out collectives situated in the city. If our first season asked how the pandemic is a portal, in our second we asked how, within such a time, can we gather? And what do we share? In this podcast that we call Collective, we tune into the knowledge that communal work transmits in polyvocal frequencies and interlocking scales. We're your hosts. I'm Gus Wendell. And I'm Jacqueline Barrios. And for our fifth episode, UHI alumni Peter Chesney and PhD candidate of history at UCLA dives into the history of rideshare in Los Angeles and beyond, illuminating the collective organizing practices that bear relevance to today's so-called sharing economy. This is the sound of music on board a regional bus in 2020's The White Tiger. The Ramin Barani film is an adaptation of Arvind Adega's Butker Prize-winning 2008 novel that tells the story of low-caste chauffeurs in India at the very start of the Great Financial Crisis. We'll come back to it later. For now, I just want you to think about how it sounds on your city's public buses. Maybe you imagine silence, but music is commonplace on the Los Angeles mass transit system I rode almost daily during my years as a graduate student at UCLA. At first, I got on board hoping for quiet, for I wanted to do my reading on the way to seminar. These were the expectations born of privilege for a white, cis man like myself who is from the suburbs north of Los Angeles. Growing up in a car culture, I played music or talk radio whenever I pleased without disturbing others, and at times I drove silently. But when I sold my car and took to biking and metro riding in 2014, I lost the right to dictate my sonic environment. The other writers mostly listen to headphones, but some prefer to play music from a speaker for everyone to hear. Every once in a while, a busker would even wheel a speaker system on board the train and accompany it with the sound of their voice singing, or a guitar, or a violin. They all hustle for tips. All of this is against Metro's regulations, which bans so-called noise pollution. That's how I too heard it until I got accustomed to this cacophonous audiotopia, gained the ability to tune it out and focus, and even started to enjoy it enough to give out a few well-earned tips. The history of music and mobility is what this podcast episode is about. I've curated songs referencing a mode of transportation variously known around the world as the Jitney, Jeepney, Collectivo, Tap Tap, Matatu, Kombi, Liftline, or Uber Pool. As opposed to public transit, where the lack of music playing on speakers is the norm, these paratransit rideshare vehicles often offer musical listening as one of their many services for customers. Soon enough, musicians started to hail listeners in these environments. They were drivers and riders who identified with travel by jitney. But here I will also illustrate how the appearance of jitneys in song dates to the first year after their invention, long before the widespread availability of car audio equipment. In 1914, 
Drivers took the very first jitneys into the streets of Long Beach and Los Angeles. This new innovation was named after the frontier poker slang term for a five-cent piece, a jitney, which gamblers tossed into the pot. By the 1910s, five cents was also the fare for a streetcar ride, and enterprising drivers began to charge the same amount to take passengers to the destination of their choice. This was a door-to-door -door service. Riders did not have to learn the streetcar's schedule or to walk the last mile from a stop to their final destination. But unlike taxi cabs or chauffeured vehicles, riders had to share this space during most trips with other fares. On the way to any given address, the Jitney drivers kept seeking and stopping for more passengers and adjusted the route to keep the vehicles as full as possible. After all, they needed to make money. Sometimes, riders had to squeeze two to a seat, or sit on each other's laps, or stand on the running board and cling to dear life. As you can imagine, this was not a safe way to move folks around the city. It also looked awfully precarious. More importantly, this was the late stage of the Gilded Age, and capitalists mustered their forces against these upstart micro-entrepreneur challengers to the streetcar's near monopoly. A slump in global trade, due to the beginning of World War I, had thrown a lot of people out of work. Enough of the newly unemployed owned automobiles that dozens and then hundreds of them converted commuter and leisure vehicles into these working vehicles called jitneys. But this was also a time when corporations like those in the rail trust had power to dictate the law. City officials had promised Henry Huntington's Los Angeles Railway and Pacific Electric the exclusive privilege to provide transportation, and these companies mobilized lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations personnel to build a case for the abolition of the jitneys. In the Los Angeles Times, critics of the trade mentioned how drivers cream skimmed which meant driving along streetcar rail lines and stealing fares awaiting the trains. These bourgeois spokespeople also worried about the dangers of vehicles, with incompetent drivers speeding, braking suddenly for fares, and even honking. They worried drivers were untrained, uninsured, and unlicensed. Critics even added a sexual component for their case against the jitneys for female passengers were at risk of assault and harassment while sitting in such close proximity to strange men. Religious leaders and the city mother of Los Angeles herself, a policewoman responsible for wayward girls, bemoaned the jitneys as yet another of the modern city's corrupting forces. Each of these concerns came up in a popular 1915 Tin Pan Alley song called Gasoline Gus and his jitney bus. Oh. 
was a sign and it read thus. This is gasoline, Gus, and his hit name, Buzz. Gus, Gus, gasoline, Gus. You probably hear a number of major differences between the popular music then and what we're used to now. For one, the vaudevillian vocals of Billy, not Bill, Billy Murray, sound very old-fashioned. He was also the guy who recorded the 1917 wartime classic Over There, which became the anthem of U.S. involvement in World War I. Known as the Denver Nightingale, Murray had a voice that was the most famed of his era. In 45 years, he recorded up to 10,000 times. Not long after his death, a 1957 article in Variety estimated he sold roughly 300 million units, which puts him behind only the Beatles and Elvis Presley in global music sales history and alongside Madonna and Michael Jackson. In a word, Murray was popular. But in those times, this meant a musician's message had to be populist. Middle-class consumers and elites preferred another kind of music, the music of operas and concert halls and parlor rooms. Vaudeville was pitched at the urban working classes, so these songs tended to be pro-worker and anti-boss. Gasoline Gus was no exception to this pattern. As you just heard, he was something of an earthy vagabond. The character came of an elitist newspaper comic strip which mocked chauffeurs for their incompetence. But in song, another side of Gasoline Gus came to the forefront. His speeding and sarcasm were a matter of attitude. He confidently talked back to a haughty female customer who told him not to go too far. At a time when middle-class Christian reformists wanted prohibition on alcohol, Gasoline Gus was a man who drank gin and presumably drove intoxicated. The song also mentioned his purchase of dynamite, which was a signature of the anarchist labor organizers that bombed the Los Angeles Times building in 1910. After an untimely death, Gus went to hell and seduced Satan's wife. All told, the world of jitneys was thoroughly proletarian. But I want to stress one crucial contradiction. The song was called Gasoline Gus and His Jitney Bus. This machine, the means of producing mobility, belonged to him. He was not the employee of a firm or a trust. The possession of the machine marked Gasoline Gus as a micro-entrepreneur, 
the small business owner is a classic example from social history of the petit bourgeois class formation that fostered conservatism. These were the shopkeepers who cheated workers, scammed customers, and elected fascists into power. The difference, I believe, is that jitney drivers were independent operators without employees and without an employer. When jitney drivers arose as a class in Los Angeles, they quickly recognized themselves as such and amalgamated into a collective. They ran their own affairs without any boss ruling over them. Their labor hall was in what is now Skid Row. They hired lawyers and lobbied the government to legitimize their trade. Within two years of the invention of the Jitney, Los Angeles instead bowed to big rail and passed regulations that drove drivers out of business. No longer allowed to use the same streets and roads as the streetcars, the Jitneys lost their competitive advantage. They also had to stick strictly to routes and timetables, to never take on more passengers than could fit, to buy licenses and to buy insurance bonds. The syndicalist model was crushed. Owner-operators had diversified the streets by creating a third way between mass public transportation and private autos. Now they were gone, well, except for the ones who kept driving when and where they could get away with it. When folks who still can ride in kidneys find out Vanderbilt's and Whitney's black baby clothes, anything goes. Cole Porter's 1934 Anything Goes was a sign jitneys had made their return during the Great Depression. But the term jitney gradually ceased to mean a paratransit bus picking up multiple fares. Instead, it was more like an unlicensed taxi cab. Police regulations kept these vehicles out of the white areas of cities, but in neighborhoods of color they tended to survive. By the 1940s, Earl Hines' The Jitney Man was a jazzy ode to such drivers. I'm the Jitney Man, a regular jockey I am. Any place you want to go, I can take you fast or slow. Bully da 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 I'm the Jitney Man. I can drive, I can. Behind this wheel, I'm the man. Take it easy in your seat. Everything will be all right. I'm the Jitney man. You don't even have to call. Look like you're going somewhere. And I'll be there with the door wide open, waiting to take your fare. I'm the Jitney man. Take you and bring you, my friend. I'm always up and down the street, cause Jitney drivers got to eat. By the early 1960s, Chuck Berry was using the word indiscriminately for any souped up or customized auto. What you've heard in this progression of songs is a semantic drift of jitney from a word for a kind of small business enterprise to a consumer object. At least that's what happened in the United States. In the Philippines, this transformation had not occurred. Jitneys lived on as a portmanteau, jeepney. After World War II had ended 
and the archipelago decolonized, the U.S. military sold off its fleet of Jeeps. Entrepreneurs purchased these vehicles and retooled them into the Jeepneys of Manila, which operated just like the Jitneys of 1915 Los Angeles. By the 1970s, hundreds of these vehicles were roaming the busiest streets of the city and competing for fares. Manila was still in the process of rebuilding after decades of imperial U.S. rule, enforced underdevelopment, and an utterly deadly, destructive, and avoidable battle for the city against Japan. So Manila didn't have much of a public transit system. Paratransit jeepneys filled the gap. Riders got to choose from various vehicles, some of which were themed with murals painted on the sides and music blaring both into the back seats and from speakers mounted on the outside. Playing on these was music from a major cultural moment in Filipino history. This was the Manila Sound of the 1970s, which was a legacy of rock and roll's popularity in Asia during the U.S. anti-communist war in Vietnam. American soldiers on leave in the Philippines went to bars and clubs featuring bands that covered Elvis, the Beatles, and the Beach Boys. Once the war ended, the soldiers shipped home but memories of this time lived on in Filipino musical tastes. Bands were free to start performing this style of music for local audiences. These songs switched freely back and forth from English to Tagalog. Since songwriters knew their music was going to play for everyday jeepney users, and sometimes literally in jeepneys, they wrote lyrics hailing the jeepney culture. This sense of place is especially strong in the hot dog song Manila, which came out in 1976, just one year after the fall of Saigon. I bought the streets of San Francisco. In translation, these lyrics mean, I miss you, Manila. Your noise is sweet to the ear. Your jeepneys are flying. Your women are beautiful. In this song, the world of Gasoline Gus is revived. Except I want to highlight one crucial difference. Rather than the jeepney bus belonging to Gus, we hear here about jeepneys belonging to Manila itself. This was not quite the case. Some Filipino jeepneys of the 1970s were owner-operated. Others had drivers who were employees of firms that owned two or more of these vehicles. Nevertheless, this song alludes to jeepneys' place in the city's collective imagination as a commons. Anyone who could afford the fares could get on board, and anyone with the capital could purchase and soup up a jeepney of their own. Besides this bootstraps romance of the road, the hot dogs also alluded to the more literal romance of urban chance encounter. Unlike the critics who attacked the jitneys of Los Angeles as a place of sexual danger, 
This band and their fans celebrated Jeepneys as an urban stage for visual pleasure and flirtatious sociability. Unlike a far more rigidly hierarchical city like progressive era Los Angeles, where the rich and beautiful people were to only ride in private vehicles and the streetcars and buses became places for the poor, riders at many rungs of the social ladder rubbed elbows in Manila's jeepneys. Indeed, this was one of the many ways global cities like Manila will never be quite as segregated as Los Angeles. However, a change has come recently to LA and its privatized and atomized transportation system. For one thing, the Metro has greatly expanded its light rail offerings in the years since 1990. For another, transit-oriented development has made the area's trains and buses more usable. We now have more housing, businesses, and cultural amenities within walking distance of stops and major lines. But something more happened just after the millennium. The great financial crisis hit in 2007, and once again, drivers in California found themselves without jobs and without job prospects. Some began experimenting with the Jitney model all over again. UCSB's Logan Green had spent his first summer after graduating in 2007 traveling the world. Business inspiration came when he saw the Combis of Zimbabwe. So he co-founded a company called Zimride that hooked up college-age drivers with empty seats with paying riders. By 2012, this company had evolved into Lyft. Two years later, Lyft succeeded in circumventing the regulations that had driven Jitneys out of business in the 1910s when it debuted Liftline. Meanwhile, that same year, Uber debuted Uberpool. This was the return of the Jitneys, and popular music quickly took note. The first major appearance of Uber product placement in a pop song was in 2013 in hip-hop artist Childish Gambino's The Worst Guys. You only come around when you want to play pool on my hot tub. Ice cream paint job in the garage. I had a menage and murdered the vibes. But afterwards it was awkward as fuck. Cause I'm nervous as fuck. You cannot get it up. I, 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 I need a minute cold water to the face. I, I, I couldn't finish. Got the Uber from a place on my porch smoking vapor. Hit with the Sunday paper. Listening to the neighbors. Two years later, the Canadian rapper called Drake followed up with energy. I got strippers in my life, but they virgins to me. I hear everybody talking about what they gonna be. I got high hopes for you. We gonna see. I got money in the course of all my niggas are free. About to call your ass a Uber, I got somewhere to be. I hear fairy tales about how they gonna run up on me. Well, run up when you see me, then we gonna see. That same year, Pusha T mentioned Uber in an appearance on Chris Brown's DGIFU. Think I will let my dough freeze? Hold please. Get about down on both knees. Who you think taught you to throw peas? Who you think taught you to rap keys? Dress Drees, Philip Lim, SLPs, like Snoop D-O-double-G. The murder was the case, so motherfuck the police. The soft like emojis with the hard eyes. Y'all caught skies, y'all cloud killers. We aiming. My soul is blacker than apartheid. We cool. You riding for the doors like Uber. Piling all of y'all 
2016, Mashable declared Uber to be hip-hop's newest cliché. The service was more heavily referenced in song than the brand's Cadillac, or Escalade. Critic Bataki Kitwana has called this a new culture of austerity after the recession started. But I see it a little differently. To each of these three musicians, rideshare was part of their consumerism. Instead of hailing drivers, they hailed the riders, who were increasingly associating this service with nightlife and hearing new music playing on car audio equipment in these very vehicles. Hip-hop thus remains engaged with experiences of everyday urban life, including transportation innovation, but it's hardly populist. From these songs, we don't learn a thing about the experiences of the workers who drive Ubers. They are silenced. Even the romance is missing. These three lyricists fantasize about piling women into cars, using Ubers to escape awkward sexual situations, or using them to send away a needy, unwanted partner. This brings me to dreams of my own, about other possibilities for the future of popular music and mobility. I think Uber and Lyft are here to stay, but there's lots more room to regulate them. From a transportation planning perspective, that means making the firms hurt every time their services cause disruption or damage to city life. If a driver blocks a bike lane or a bus stop, that should lead to an enormous penalty for their employer to have to pay. And from a labor organizing perspective, we must fight to undo Proposition 22, which Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and Instacart spent over $200 million to get passed. This law classifies drivers as independent contractors, a new category of worker. Listen to the words of Cherry Murphy, a black woman, a driver, and a writer who had this to say about Prop 22, which passed in the same year California voted overwhelmingly for anti-Prop 22 candidates like President Joe Biden himself. And after it was all said and done, after we were able to come back, 40% of the voters had buyer's remorse because they believed that they were voting for a law that was pro-worker only to find out that it was exploiting the very same people that they were trying to help. As relates to, to workers, we've talked extensively about flexibility. And so that $204 million also went into the divide and conquer campaign a flexibility that doesn't allow you to use the restroom, a flexibility that doesn't allow you to have policies, clear policies as relates to when you deactivate it, a policies around sexual assault claims, a policy around discrimination issues. These are all divide and conquer tactics. And then there's us. It's us as relates to the kind of solidarity movement that we are willing to be in. And that requires a kind of relationship in asking ourselves what we're willing to do in order to make sure that this movement stops in its tracks. Are we really willing to center those voices who are mostly impacted? Are we really willing to redistribute the kind of power that we're talking about so that the people that are impacted aren't thought of as an afterthought? 
those are the divide and conquer tactics that we need to talk about in this ep epidemic of misclassification. Because trust me, California, California, California is, is licking their wounds over some things that we could have done differently. And that's to talk about this four-letter word called race and the analysis around race. And that's one thing we should have done at the very forefront of this whole campaign. That is a divide and conquer tactic. So when you talk about divide and conquer, we can look at Lyft and Uber and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were greedy corporations. They spent all this money. And then there's us. And so as we move forward, as we move forward, it requires, it requires that we talk about what is the things that we need to do differently in order to move forward and have those real kind of, have those real kind of conversations in a way that brings those people to the table that we have talked about that we don't like. I get it. I'm a queer black woman. There are a lot of people that don't like me, but we have to be in relationship with them. We cannot afford to be in competition with them in a way that dismisses them. You know why? Because it hurts people that look like me. While most of us are sitting in there in their privilege, we got brothers and sisters living in their cars because you fighting over whether or not you wanna work with them or be in a movement with them. Those are divide and conquer tactics. And I'm gonna leave it there. Murphy is part of a labor collective called Gig Workers Rising. And they're just one among several new left-wing anarchist or progressive groups coming from outside the neoliberal or the milquetoast liberal establishment. The success of this effort to collectivize hyper-individualized contractors will hinge on the movement's ability to speak in multiple languages and to get the message out in every medium. Music is thus essential, especially for workers who still have the power to select what they play in their cars. Too much music about rideshare has been all about riders and hardly about drivers. Fortunately, that's starting to change. I'm thinking of the fantastic music in the film The White Tiger, which ends with its hero, a low-caste driver, spoiler alert, murdering his master, taking the master's money he's using to bribe the government, and using it to found a high-tech taxi business in Bangalore. He highlights how important it is to characterize drivers as employees who sign contracts as opposed to servants. In this sense, the white tiger dramatizes the polar opposite of the shift we're seeing in California with Prop 22, which has created a new, dare I say, cast of workers. The film ends rebelliously with the anti-capitalist hip-hop anthem we've needed for our moment. Now listen to an excerpt from 2021's Jungle Mantra by Divine with Vince Staples.
Tune in next week for the next episode of the Digital Salon Podcast, The Collective. To discover the archive behind this episode, visit our website, digitalsalonpodcast.org.